Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Almost 15 years ago, I worked with Mark Shriver, who was a young legislator uh, in Maryland running for Congress uh, and a member of the uh, Kennedy family, son of Sergeant Shriver and Eunice Shriver, um, and imbued with their same spirit of service. Uh, we lost that campaign. I take full credit for it. Uh, but uh, that opened up a whole nother chapter in Mark's life. His latest book, Pilgrimage, My Search for the Real Pope Francis, is not only revealing uh, about the Pope, uh, but also about Mark's own uh, questions, struggles, and embrace of uh, his own Catholic faith. He dropped by the Institute of Politics the other day, and we had a chance to talk about his life, career, and the Pope. Mark Shriver, w- welcome. Uh, Thank uh, you old, for having me. Old friend. Thank you. Uh, you know, I do a lot of these with people whose stories, Harry Reid, for example, we just did one with him, and talking about, you know, uh, Searchlight Nevada and what a difficult place it was and his hard scrabble. You've got a sort of different family story. So let's start off by Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's a little sorry, different. But it had but it probably had its own challenges. Uh and I've actually had a couple of your cousins on the show Caroline and uh, Patrick uh, were on 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 this uh, podcast. But I'm interested in your perspective on the sort of burdens and blessings of growing up as you did in a family that had extraordinary scrutiny, kind of America's royal family in the 60s and 70s and so on. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, to me it was completely normal because obviously I didn't know any other experience. And my mom and dad never created an atmosphere where we were ever used terms like America's royal family or any concept that things were going to be given to you because of who you were related to. I mean, they went to work every day. Um, you know, literally never took days off for sickness. They went to mass every day. So, you know, when you see your parents going to mass every day and kneeling and asking for help and guidance, you realize that they have problems and that they need help. Uh, and yet they went to work every day uh, to try to make the world a little bit better of a place. So there was never around when I was growing up that you had to go into politics or that, uh, you know, we were above anybody else. Uh, and the way they interacted with people, uh, I think, also reinforced that message. You know, my father and mother, you know, treated you the same as they would treat the waitress at their favorite restaurant or the cardinal from Washington, D.C. or the president of the United States. So I think they saw every moment as a way to interact 
um, with God. Every interaction was, you know, God was present or God is nowhere. So God's in everything or God's nowhere. So I think they saw God in everything, like St. Ignatius, the guy who started the Jesuits, believed. So to me, you know, and my friends, I was blessed with great friends. And, you know, if I ever said, hey, you know, my uncle's Senator Kennedy or my uncle was President Kennedy, they'd be like, so what? You know, let's pass the, you know, ketchup. And I never did that. That's all you were doing was pets, passing ketchup? Well, I mean, are we talking about college? I mean, if we're talking about college, it's not the ketchup. Talk to me. You wrote a touching book about your dad, yes. uh, who was a major figure in uh, American history in that period because he uh, started the Peace Corps and uh, a lot of the domestic uh, service programs yes. under the Kennedy administration. But before that, he was here in Chicago and actually was involved in the civic life Yep. of uh, Chicago. Very tell, much so. He tell was me the, about uh, your dad. He was the head of the Chicago Board of uh, Education. He was the head of the Merchandise Mart. He loved Chicago. And I think if things had gone different ways, he probably would have ended up staying in the city because every time I came back to visit my college buddies who were from Chicago, a lot of them from Chicago, uh, for the Sergeant Shriver uh, Legal Center here run mm-hmm. by John Bauman, the great yeah. John Bauman, yeah. uh, dad would come back here for those on an annual event. He loved Chicago uh, and I think loved the energy and the idealism, really, the entrepreneurship of uh, the people in Chicago. The, uh, uh, and he had, a, the, you know, obviously had a, Headed east because of President Kennedy asking him to run the Peace Corps. I'm sorry, I cut you no, off. No, no, I was going to say that uh, the fact that he was uh, head of the school board, given the politics of the city at the time, suggests a close relationship with Mayor Daley as well. I think he had a really good relationship. I know he had a very good relationship with Mayor Daley. When he died, I actually got a picture of the two of them uh, in which Mayor Daley sent a, a great note to my pop You know, that hung up on the wall in his uh, house bedroom area. For a number of years. And I think he had a great relationship, you know, in the Catholic Church here. He did a lot of work with Martin Luther King to integrate the Catholic hospitals and the Catholic schools. Uh, And as you know, David, he was in charge of the Civil Rights Division in Senator Kennedy's presidential campaign uh, because of his good relationship with King and Abernathy and other African-American leaders, not only in Chicago, but around the world, around the country. Um, so I think he really saw the energy and the entrepreneurship and uh, a lot of the issues at play in America in Chicago in the 50s and then took it to a national scale, you know, obviously under the Kennedy administration and then, you know, implemented, you know, the creation of Head Start, legal services for the poor, Job Corps, Vista, foster grandparents, all those programs he started. Um, you know, some of the seeds were planted here in Chicago. He, um, he also uh, took on maybe one of the most uh, uh, difficult political assignments ever, which was he stepped in in 1972 when George McGovern's running mate, uh, Tom Eagleton, was forced off the ticket because of uh, uh, revelations about uh, mental illness uh, that he had battled. Um, And he, it's sort of like most people jump off of the Titanic and your dad jumped onto it. Right. And, you know, I remember at his funeral, uh, Bill Clinton spoke, and one of the things he said was how uh, amazed he was that Sergeant Shriver came down to Texas to campaign in a race that was clearly they were going to lose. And yet he was cheerful and he was upbeat. I remember Clinton saying, you know, which stunned me because to a politician, the, the only thing worse than Death is losing an election. Right, right. But uh, And he couldn't understand why he was so 
upbeat. Right. But but he was. He was, but I think he wasn't a traditional politician in that regard. You know, I don't think he thought that aspiring to higher office or was the end all and the be all. I don't think he thought that if he lost an election, it was worse than death. It was just another experience in life. And I know that sounds kind of corny, uh, you know, in an institute of politics. And- no, I, listen, I, I, I found that kind of a stunning thing to say. I, I guess it was offered as a joke. But um, I, 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 as much as you mean as by President de- Clinton, uh, yeah, as de- as as uh, devoted as I am to politics, I think there are many worse things than losing an election. Yeah, well, I think including you're... losing your your principles or losing your soul. You yeah, know? when I don't think he ever dealt did that, and mm-hmm. I think what he was really interested in was the bigger issue. And you know, I think I, I go back to his faith because I think that was the bedrock of his life. And I think he thought, you know, if he wins an election, great. If he doesn't, there's going to be an opportunity tomorrow to do something else that tries to make the country a little bit better. And it may be just an interaction with five or ten people, or it may be the opportunity to go in a law firm, or it may be an opportunity to go work at, uh, you know, somewhere else in Washington. But he didn't define himself that way. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, and he lost the two elections he ran in. So he ran for vice president in 72 and got crushed. And then he ran in 76 and lost pretty quickly in the presidential primaries. You know, obviously Jimmy Carter eventually won. But I don't think that he then said, you know, he never whined about it. He never complained about it. He never said he got shortchanged about it in any conversation I ever had. Um, And I think that there's a difference between, you know, being sad or feeling like you've are a loser as compared to his approach to life, which was joy filled. Because I think he really did see every interaction as a chance to interact with God, Mm -hmm. whether he was, you know, talking big shots or not. And I think that keeps you going every day. That's why he went to work until he, you know, Alzheimer's robbed him of the ability. Because I don't think he saw it as work. I think he saw it as, hey, here's my chance to do something today. Mm-hmm. And I think my mother had the same thing. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask about her. She was a, 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 a major figure in her own right. How did your folks meet? How did they meet? I think they met, uh, that's a good question. They met at a party. My father knew my mom's older sister, Kathleen Kennedy. And uh, my dad is about six years, was about six years older than my mom. And they met in New York City after the war. My father uh, went to Yale Law School and then skipped his graduation to go into the Navy. And then Pearl Harbor happened. Uh, And then he went to New York after that and worked at Newsweek. And uh, my grandpa, Joe Kennedy, who's, you know, on the Merchandise Mart, uh, had met him, heard about him, and uh, knew that he was a very good writer. He worked on the Yale Daily News, put himself through college and through law school because his family as a writer no no just you know through Mm -hmm. grants and scholarships Mm -hmm. he's just he was a smart guy uh so it was i guess academic Mm -hmm. Uh scholarships and he uh joe kennedy asked him to take a look at some writings that his son joe kennedy had written who Who died in the war died in the war died in the war as did kathleen right as did kathleen after the war she Mm -hmm. died in a plane crash Mm -hmm. uh after the war and so my mom and dad had met each other in New York, and they dated when they were in Chicago, and they ended up getting engaged in Chicago in the big park right down the street, which, of course, has just escaped my mind. Well, let me attest that getting engaged in Chicago is a good thing. It is. Yes, it's a key to enduring marriage. <laughs> and they, they lived in Chicago for the first uh, couple of years of their marriage. Had My three older siblings were all born in Chicago. Um, your mom... I feel a personal debt of gratitude to her. I, I know you know that because I have a child with uh, with uh, intellectual disabilities who has participated for years in the Special Olympics. Yes. And uh, your mom 
was really the towering figure around that whole project that you know we in Chicago take pride in Ann Burke who was part of that yes. uh, who was a young park district she's now in the state supreme court she was a young park district yes. uh, 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 staffer and and worked on it um, uh, but the Special Olympics and now your brother Tim runs it has touched so many lives tell me about that and why she I, I know there was a personal issue yeah her there. sister Rosemary uh, you know had developmental issues and uh, I think she saw the opportunities her brother had her brothers had and I think felt that through sports which she was she loved and was very good at uh, that she could start breaking down walls of isolation and uh, misunderstanding and use sports as a vehicle to do that so you know when they were so-called experts said kids couldn't uh, kids with developmental differences couldn't play sports team sports she thought they could they couldn't run track and field she thought they could and of course the games that you're referencing with Judge Burke uh, in Chicago in 68 a couple of weeks after Uncle Bobby was killed in Soldier Field with Mayor Daly in attendance were the first international Special Olympic Games and a couple of athletes from Canada a couple of athletes scattered around America participate in those games and Mayor Daly had the line after it was over that he turned to mother and said you know Eunice the world will never be the same as a result of these games which is great you know insight because those games have helped change laws in America but really all around the world because you know leaders of countries see that athletes can participate uh, athletes with developmental differences I was in uh, Beijing a couple of years before the quote regular Olympics happened we had this summer special Olympic games and I mean it was you know 100,000 people at the opening ceremonies yeah. the head of China was there I mean it you know it was changing things in China for I, people I, with I don't think people fully appreciate um, just the the um, the the joy that comes with participation and the sense of accomplishment yeah. that these special Olympians feel but it's something that i know my my daughter looks forward to every every year i mean it's 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 part of her it's part of her life and i think uh, it makes a big difference for the families too right yeah. david i mean i think you know my mother loved the athletes but really also loved the families cuz yeah these things are family you, you know when someone has a problem of any kind yes. a challenge in a family it's defining to the whole family it's not just uh, to that one person, to that one person, right. siblings, parents, uh, yeah. So this 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 touches everyone. Now I remember because we worked together. I'll get to that because I'm the one who destroyed your political career as your <laughs> political strategist. So I think I ought to acknowledge. It's okay, that. no, no, thank you. I'm I'm very happy. Where I, am. <laughs> I thought you might be. That's why we threw the thing. Thank but, you. But <laughs> um, but I remember you talking about the. Um, uh, the fact that your mother would have these events in your backyard yes. in Maryland, yeah, uh, and uh, uh, with, I guess I don't know whether that was the forerunner, or, uh, but but yeah, she had those experiences in the backyard. My folks rented a huge farm outside, about half an hour outside of DC, when my family moved when they moved there in the nineteen sixties. Um, and the game, you know, they, and you know, after the games here in '68, I mean, I remember bus, bus, bus loads of 
uh, athletes, both young folks and the older people with developmental differences coming off the buses, swimming in the swimming pool, running around in the backyard. Uh, and it was a big farm. So they had, you know, obstacle courses, they had softball games, they had volleyball games, they had football games, they had, you know, walks in the woods. And that was all, you know, created energy around Special Olympics and that movement. Mm -hmm. And you got to, you know, for somebody, I'm 50, right? So people forget that 60 years ago, people with developmental differences were locked up, isolated. They didn't have jobs. They weren't working at the grocery store or in the law firm. They weren't getting married. Uh, they weren't allowed to live on their own. So they weren't taking public transportation. Wow. I mean, now... You know, they're part of the society, right? And people forget about that. And yeah. I think a lot of that was knocked down because the Kennedy family said they had a child with developmental differences. And the Special Olympics creates momentum building on other folks who are working on this issue. And I think all these points of light, all of these ripples of hope really um, add up to changing the laws yeah. in America. It, it, it's it's uh, It's been extraordinary. I mean, I have a... And I've discussed this with Tim and my my wife Susan, who you know well, yes, has, is an activist uh, uh, in her, uh, in her own right. Was on the president's commission uh, uh, relative to these issues. You know, on the one hand, it is absolutely imperative to knock down these barriers and certainly to end kind of the warehousing of, of and 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 sort of neglect of people. Uh, who, who face these challenges. On the other hand, um, it's important to respect their own personal identity and not try and be prescriptive about what they should or shouldn't do, just as I wouldn't be prescriptive of what you shouldn't or should or shouldn't do. And sometimes in our zeal, uh, we can overshoot the runway and, and say, no, you shouldn't be doing this, you should be doing that. And I think um, giving... Uh, uh, people who, who who struggle with these challenges, the whole range of choices and options, right. whether it's in housing or employment or 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 uh, any number of other areas, is the most important thing. But um, I think but, you're right. I mean, there's you can get it in all aspects of life where you tell people they should do this. It's shooting yourself, right? Yes, and you can should yourself all day long. So yeah, yeah and I, I mean, I mean, all with good intentions. You know, all yeah. with good intentions. Uh, we can say, you know, you um, you should live. Uh, you know, we just had a issue in this state. I believe strongly in community uh, living, um, but it isn't the right thing for everybody. People may. My daughter lives in like a dormitory, right? Uh, and she loves it. She loves the socialization that comes uh, with that. Uh, it's an apartment building, and she has a couple of uh, roommates and so on. Um, but we've had a kind of scandal with group homes in the state recently. The Tribune uncovered uh, because of lack of supervision, lack of training, lack of, frankly, support for uh, mm -hmm. those who are in charge. I think the biggest uh, – now you've got me on my high horse. That's okay. Uh, but uh, the <laughs> biggest thing I think it's we need good. to do is make sure that um, we invest in – uh, these people that they don't fall off a cliff in our society, and uh, too often they're the ones who are at the 
the losing end of these decisions yep. that policymakers are making about resources. That's good. That's exactly right because they don't have political, you know, sway. They're not right. making big campaign contributions, and when the cuts are made, they're the ones that don't have the biggest voice. Yeah, and they're the most vulnerable. And it's the same is true with poor kids. And I think we're in a real situation now nationally where if we have huge investments in the military and defeating ISIS and at the same time wanting to cut income taxes for businesses and individuals and we want to support the veterans there the and then you have uh, entitlement programs the things that are most vulnerable for cuts are going to be the very people you're talking about and also you know poor people one of the discussions that's going on now with the new administration and the congress is the possibility of block granting medicaid which yep. would be uh, could be catastrophic for uh, people with various kinds of disabilities and challenges who re- rely on uh, Medicaid because th- that will give state optionality, states optionality to to leave them behind. That's so exactly right. It, it, it's a big concern. So just returning to your family uh, for a second, um, you know, you mentioned um, you mentioned Kathleen Kennedy, Joe Kennedy. You mentioned your uncle Bobby. Um, your family has, you know, just faced an enormous tragedy, and it in the spotlight. It's not like you, you know, you can have the privacy of grieving, uh, and it has sort of it defined an era there. Um, I always, when when people say, "Well, I don't know how you dealt with this or that," I would say, "Well, you have to." I mean, there's no option. option. Right. But how how much did that? How pervasive was that feeling that of loss or or uh, uh, kind of um, sense of of, of uh, being star crossed? I think you know it's a big family, right? I mean, and I've lost uh, I don't know three cousins, you know, that mm-hmm. I knew growing up pretty well. I mean, really well. Um, you know, and it's tragic, uh, but I guess, you know, the sense that I get is that everybody is, you know, you got to pick it, pick the pieces back up and keep moving mm-hmm. and you got to keep, you know, moving. And I mean, you know, my aunt Ethel, who I'm, I'm close to, and I think the world of, but, you know, uh, every Robert time. Robert Kennedy's wife. Yeah. Ethel Kennedy. Sorry. Yeah. Bobby's Kennedy's wife. Every time I see her, how are you doing? I'm Great. And I'm like, how, you know, sometimes, you know, she's got to have aches and pains. She's, I don't know, almost 90 or something. I don't know how old she is. I'm great every day. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to go, you know, if you're going out uh, in the summertime, she's around our kids. She knows all of our kids' names. She asks about them. She talks to them. She just is positive. And, you know, she's seen a lot of tragedy, right? But she's just, how you doing? I'm great. You know, if it's raining and miserable day, how you doing? I'm great. Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, just and she means kind it. Of, yeah, she means yeah, it. I've met her a few times. Yeah, she's, she's just got a, a lot of positive. Person. Yeah, positive energy, and her kids are like that. And they've you know lost obviously their dad and um, you know a couple brothers, and it's brutal. But you, they are positive, and they you know grind away. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Mark Shriver. Mark, you, talk about your own sort of pathway. I mentioned before that I met you when you were a legislator in Maryland yes. running for Congress. How did you get to that point? And um, was there 
any kind of aversion to running for public office because of expectations? That- I think there's, you know, some of that expectation stuff. But I had worked with juvenile delinquents in Baltimore City for five or six years. You had run a founded this program, the Choice yeah. Jobs Program. Yes. Talk about that because it was really a quite a yeah. So essentially, what Maryland did in the late '80s when I was coming out of college is they deinstitutionalized kids that had been locked up for juvenile delinquent acts, right? And you talked about the community support systems not being in place for people with developmental differences. They're not there for kids coming out of locked facilities. So this was a a home-based or a community-based home tracking program where we worked with kids that were uh, locked up coming back into the community or instead of being locked up, they would come into our program. So we hired young college grads who would go out and monitor the kids, work with them every day, seven days a week, multiple times a day. And the program grew, you know, from a small program with 25 kids in a public school where I worked uh, to going all across Baltimore and all across Maryland. And I interacted with the Maryland legislature a lot because we were getting some state funding and we were advocating for systemic change on how they funded programs. Uh, Because I think they were funding some pretty lousy programs and we wanted to say, don't fund these types of models, but fund ones that are more efficient and more effective. So interacting with the legislature, you know, being in the front of the Appropriations Committee and the authorizing committees exposed me to the Maryland state government. Uh, And after doing that for seven years, six years, uh, I decided to run for the House of Delegates. Um, And my father's family had been involved in Maryland, you know, politics for, um, you know, over a couple hundred years. Uh, The Schreiber family had been in in essentially Carroll County. Lots of practice. Lots of practice in that (laughs) side of the family in Maryland and and a lot of pride from my pop's perspective. But there was never, you know, my father never said, you got to go in the Maryland legislature or my mother never said that. Were they happy you you decided to do that? Yeah, my mother, you know, loves, loved politics. And I think she thought it was an honorable profession where you could make a real difference. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, she's right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to say that because there's an awful lot of cynicism. Right? There is, yeah. I mean, and, and I think politics is a noble profession, and I, particularly when it's practiced by men and women that have humility and realize they're not, you know, the leader of the the end all and the be all. Mm-hmm. So that they have to work, you know, across party lines, and they have to compromise and try to move the country forward. And I think that sense of trying to move your state or your town, city, whatever, country Ford has been lost a little bit. And the notion that, you know, I think um, what what's also lost is that every single day, you know, things happen all over this country in city councils and state legislatures, and yes, sometimes in Congress, that touch on people's lives in a positive way, right. because some one legislator working with a community sees a problem and... Uh, and offers an innovative way to deal with it. Right. Uh, and you were one of those those people. And I think that gets lost in this narrative of political kind of dystopia, you know? Yeah, I think that's correct. And I think, unfortunately, the media, you know, wants to see conflict and wants to see some problem uh, that's out there. So I think the good stuff that happens, which I think, you know, is, is by far the majority – uh, doesn't get the ink, doesn't get the attention. And I think that's too bad, too, because we focus on the negative. We focus on the dysfunctionality, as you say. So I think, you know, when I was in politics for eight years, I mean, Maryland is a state dominated by Democrats. Uh, and, you know, I didn't like it when the Republicans asked me questions when I had my bills, you know, on the floor. But on reflection, they were doing the right thing. They were challenging it. They were trying to make it stronger. They were trying to change it, you know, based on their political philosophy. And that's healthy. 
I mean, that's the arena that right, the it's Teddy healthy. Roosevelt talked it, it, about. It is healthy, and that's democracy. It's unhealthy if the objective is to simply block everything. Which it, is or destroy it. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. But my point is, is if they were trying to make it better, and, you know, the questions from the Democrats to Republicans trying to make things better, uh, I think if they're just trying to, you know, screw it or shortchange it just because it's introduced by a Democrat, then that's not good. And I think that's that has devolved into where we are in many cases. Yeah, you uh, I, the aforementioned congressional race. You, you you were a very very strong candidate, but you ran up against a very strong candidate, yeah. stronger I think than either of us realized. Uh, yes. in, in in the now senator Chris Van Hollen. Yes, um, he's a great legislator. He was in the state senate when I was in the house. Uh, he's a friend. He's actually I work for Save the Children. And he's come and talked to our board a couple of times in the last, I don't know, 10 years uh, upon my invitation. So I have, you know, huge respect for his work. And he's yeah. he's a very good politician. I had a chance to uh, work with him when I was in Washington. And he's just a really impressive, thoughtful, uh, thoughtful guy. Uh, you only lost narrowly by a couple of points. Um how, what was that experience, uh, experience like from your perspective? Well, I mean, you know, no one likes to lose, right? But I think, uh, you know, I've just finished this book on Pope Francis. Yeah, and, we're going to get to it. I'm not, I'm, yeah, no, no, I, I know. But it's, the, you know, he had a rise to power at a very young age and had a very influential position in his late 30s into his 50s. And then he had a dramatic fall. And he called it up an exile based on uh, his authoritarian demeanor and the way he behaved with people. And he came out of it much stronger, uh, and it led him on his path to being the first Jesuit ever elected pope. And I think these you know, moments where you lose or where you're exiled or you have a dark night of the soul, I think help you. And for me, it was great because I ended up you know, going to save the children. It gave me the ability to raise our kids with my wife, Jeannie. I live about two miles from my folks. I helped them as they descended and died. Uh, it you know, sparked this book I wrote on my dad called yes. The Good Man. Um, which in turn opened up this possibility of writing a book on Pope Francis. Uh, so I frankly think if I had won that race and uh, I would never have had the relationship I had with my kids and my wife and my parents, I would never have written the book on my pop. I would never have had the opportunity to write this book on the Pope. And it is, those experiences have you know changed me in the way I look at things and I hope made me a better uh, husband and friend and colleague. And I, you know, so I joked a couple of minutes ago that I'm glad I lost. The people were smart. They made the right decision. Chris is an excellent political leader uh, and will do a great job for Maryland and for the country. And I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. Uh, you I think t- you touched different. on something which is not, I don't think, well appreciated. It, you can't, as a politician, talk about the sacrifices of public service. But public service is a sacrifice in terms of the time away from family yeah. and the kind of exposure that you get that isn't always a pleasant that your family has to deal with as well. Yeah, uh, there are all kinds of. Uh, it's a grind, right? I mean, you know it better than I. Uh, but you get attacked. You got to raise money, you know, constantly. You got to be out of the house. You know, when I first went into politics, a guy who was a kind of a political operator in Maryland said, "Politics is a jealous mistress." Mm-hmm. And it can take you away from your wife, your husband, your kids, and it can be all-consuming. So when I lost, um, you know, it it opened up a whole slew of time that I didn't have when I was in politics. 
and that opened up other windows. And you went into uh, t- talk about the decision to go to work for Save the Children. And, yeah, so and- Save the Children's been around for almost a hundred years now. Uh, works with kids all across America and in 120 countries around the world. I run the Choice Program, working with juvenile delinquents in Maryland. And this gave me the opportunity to do work, you know, to run an organization that was all across America and to expand it. So that was fun. Uh, it gave me a chance to, you know, go down to Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, uh, New Mexico, Washington State, working with state legislators, um, governors, and trying to run a high-quality, results-focused early childhood education program. So, you know, I mean, I negotiated contracts with uh, Haley Barber, who, mm-hmm. you know, said to me, is this program any good? And we showed him the statistics, and he turned to his secretary of education and said, are these good numbers? And the guy said, yeah, they are. And Haley said, all right, let's 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 invest in them. So, you know, th- th- those are whole life experiences that I had never had before, you know, and being in Mississippi or being in Alabama and meeting those folks and working on helping kids in those states was something I didn't have in Maryland. So I got, you know, friends now all across uh, the country that are, you know, wonderful characters, Republicans and Democrats, because we work primarily in Republican states. Yeah. And the focus on kids, zero to five, which is a big emphasis of President Obama's. But those first five years of life when 90% of brain growth happens is, I think, the biggest uh, uh, social justice issue in this country when poor kids are entering, you know, uh, at the age of four or 18 months behind my kid or your kids. And we spend billions of dollars trying to remediate that. It's outrageous. I mean, and it's uh, that we don't do more as a country. And you see good support in, in Republican states like Alabama and Oklahoma for early ed. And yet we can't as a country move this thing forward on a federal level. I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, frankly, President Obama pushing it and got a lot of resistance. But I wish the leadership in Washington would see what's going on in the states and make a commitment to our poor kids before they enter kindergarten, because uh, I think it's outrageous. What, are you what apprehensive about uh, – we mentioned earlier that some of the things that are likely to happen now, a, a large tax cut, with, uh, a defense buildup. Are you worried that kids are going to get squeezed out? I am, and I've talked to Republican leaders on the Hill. You know, Congressman Cole from Oklahoma, who's in charge of the subcommittee, who's a real advocate for early ed. Yeah, you know, when you do the when you lay out the priorities, he's a good guy. Yeah, Tom Cole, I think yeah. he's great. I went to the Republican convention, did a, a Facebook Live interview with him. He, mm-hmm. you know, came to our stand. He's really good, and he understands the issue, and he's a strong supporter of it. But. You know, we got to have more than just one member of, uh, I mean, and there are other Republicans who are good on this issue, but when you lay out the entitlements and you lay out defense spending and you lay out tax cut, what gets squeezed are the vulnerable and the powerless, and those are poor kids yeah. fall into that category. You, uh, uh, you, what strikes me is that uh, as you talk about your parents, all of you their children have in some form or fashion gone into elements of service. Uh, You know, one of your brothers, uh, Anthony, started the Best Buddies program. I know these because my child was a consumer of these uh, to provide companionship to kids who who needed it, who had special needs. Yes. Uh, And obviously we talked about uh, you were overwhelmed by the Shrivers? Tim. I, well, the Shrivers are overwhelming. I will say that. I have been overwhelmed by the Shrivers. Well, I just got to tell the audience that you're smiling happily right now. <laughs> but you're I know I, I, so I really I'm admire sorry, I each, of, each of you Thank in your you. own way have made a mark. 
that is Thank of you. uh that is uh your own, your sister Maria has been very involved in women's issues. Yep, and done a lot on Alzheimer's too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, these are um, uh, the, you're living your principles and your faith and your and and obviously lessons learned from watching your folks, which is uh, it's, it's it's really admirable. Um, but thank you. Uh, thank I'm, you. I'm sure you sit around. Uh, Having spent just a little bit of time with you and your family, I'm yeah. sure you sit around all the time and say, "Gee, aren't we great?" Yeah, no, those conversations don't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, they don't. I mean, and my brother Bobby, who you didn't mention there, who I know you know, has done so who was much a work reporter on. at the Chicago Daily News when I was a young reporter at the Chicago Tribune. I guess I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah, he was around. Yeah. He was around uh, and loved the newspaper business. Yeah, it's you know, gone in. He worked for a great newspaper. I was sad when the Daily News went down. It was, it was a spunky. That's where. Mike Royko wrote. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, he knew Royko, and uh, he had, you know, he loved Chicago too. But he's yeah. done so much work with Bono on the whole AIDS and Africa debt relief work over there. Uh, worked with President George W. Bush on PEPFAR and uh, trying to uh, create economic opportunities, but also deal with some of the social problems that are going on across Africa. So, no, we never had those conversations. And was the mayor about, of Santa Monica? Right? He was the mayor. Yes, of course, yeah. we're talking politics. He was the mayor of Santa Monica. And uh, d- does a lot today on the homeless issue uh, mm-hmm. for veterans and the VA's, Veterans Administration's lack of uh, work on housing and uh, health services to veterans in the, you know, L.A. County and, and that part of California. It's just that's a crime as well. Uh, and he's calling on President-elect Trump uh, and that administration to really help build that out and do it quickly, which they should have done over the last, you know, really 40 years. You know, um, uh, you mentioned the Shriver Center on National Poverty Law and John Bowman, uh, who uh, is heroic. In fact, I, I hope to have him here soon, uh, but has kind of waged a, 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 a campaign for 40 years as a, as a lawyer to give voice to poor people uh, here and elsewhere and has a real success in doing it. So that's one other element in which the family continues. Yeah, and John's great. I mean, he's got, uh, everybody I talk to in Chicago loves him. Yeah. And he's, he's not only had guy. an impact in Illinois, but all around the country because they're disseminating the good work they're doing in Illinois to, you know, Maryland, California, all across the country. Yeah. So it's powerful. No, he's an admirable guy. I, I met him in a co-ed basketball game 40 years ago where I also met my wife. So we've been friends, all been friends wow. uh, ever At since. At the same game? Yeah, yeah. The game went on for quite a while. It took me four years to get up the courage to ask my wife out so uh this game went is that on true for a long time. For... that's totally true oh totally God. true well, your wife is much more attractive than right you know. that was evident like that was evident more. then as now <laughs> than you and classier and smarter and, uh, and i'm being and, serious too right? no, i know yeah i know it's a, if it were not a podcast i'd show people a picture but uh but she does great work at cure by the way i have a buddy does. of mine who's on your board now sky copeland from maryland yes who's got a kid with developmental differences and uh it's huge admiration for Susan's work. She is heroic. She is heroic, and thank you for saying that. Let's talk about your writing, and particularly the Pope Francis project. Talk about what prompted you uh, to... uh, You you travel widely in search of who this man was, and I kind of wondered, and 
whether you're also tra- traveling widely in doing that, in in uh, trying to discover who you were in terms of your own faith. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it, actually. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, so I think, you know, for me, the nuns and priests that I know, not only in Illinois, uh, but all around the country, and the work I've done at Save the Children, bumping into nuns and priests in some of the poorest places in this country working away, was so disconnected from what was happening with the hierarchy. The, you know, sexual abuse scandals, the scandals around the banking industry or the Vatican Bank, comments about Islam, com- treatment of women, uh, you know, and what people wear and what the Pope was wearing and his red shoes just had nothing to do with my interpretation of what Christ was and what the nuns and priests that I knew around the, around the globe were doing. Uh, and it's so distant from the other great religions, you know, Jews calling tikkun alam, you know, repairing the world, uh, Muslims, Islam, you know, I mean, these are all concepts that the great religions have, which is trying to help each other, uh, not only on a personal basis, but also a relationship to God. So anyways, when Pope Francis came out on that balcony and asked people to bless him before he blessed them, wow, that's a sign of humility. Next day, paying his hotel bill. A couple of weeks later, getting on his knees at a juvenile facility and washing and kissing the feet of juvenile delinquents. And as we just spoke about, you know, I worked with juvenile delinquents in Baltimore. I wouldn't today get on my knees and wash and kiss their feet in that type of facility. I mean, that takes guts. And he's a 76-year-old man on his knees, right? And when he goes on his first trip as Pope to Lampedusa to see the refugees, these were all gestures that kind of caught, clearly caught my attention and made me wonder, are these publicity stunts in order to garner positive PR for the church, or is this guy the real deal? And I wanted to get out of my Catholic funk, if you will. Uh, and you, and, you, and I you wouldn't be see, alone in that. I mean, to put it in a, cra- in a crass way, yeah. the Catholic Church had a marketing problem with younger Catholics who felt increasingly distant from uh, from the church. I think that's true, and I, but I think it was not just younger, but, you mm-hmm. know, I guess I'm older, you know, at that point, whatever, Thank 50 years ago. Thank you the benefit of the doubt. Thank you very much, David. Uh, <laughs> for people of all ages, right? I mean, you know, it's just there was a disconnect there. And I think this guy, uh, I wanted to dig in and figure out whether, as I said, these were PR stunts or whether this guy was the real deal. And, you know, the, the question of how he had a rise to power and then a fall. And then a kind of a different rise back to power always interests me, you know, how he became the first Jesuit ever elected pope. And the Jesuits, as you may know, it's an order of Catholic priests, take uh, a vow to make sure that if they feel one of their brother Jesuits is trying to get a better job, they're supposed to report him. So there's this sense of humility built into the Jesuit order, and somehow this guy becomes bishop, then cardinal, then pope. How did that happen? And why does he get on his knees and wash a Muslim girl's feet when the Catholic Church has always said that priests are only supposed to wash the feet of other male priests, obviously? Something's going on here. So I wanted to dig in and not talk to the big shots in Argentina or in Rome about him, but, you know, the people he knew and liked him and didn't like him in in Buenos Aires and across Argentina, you know, priests, nuns, but grieving parents. I talked to, you know, rabbis and fathers who, a father who lost his daughter in the Jewish uh, community center bombing there in 94, um, who told me all these stories about Bergoglio, Cardinal Bergoglio. So it's not just Catholics. I mean, this guy reaches beyond Catholics. He has real connections with Jews. It's not this interface stuff for, you know, one day a year. These are real personal connections. I, I want to take a short break and I want to mention something to you about a cardinal who was here in Chicago. Uh, We'll be right back with Mark Shriver. I'm Jewish, 
So I, I obviously am not, uh, you know, I'm not t- closely tied into the Catholic Church. Uh, but we had a cardinal here in the 80s who you'll remember, Card- Cardinal Bernadine. Yes. Also a Jesuit, I, I, I think. Am I right about that? I don't remember whether he is or he is. I know he's great pals with my dad. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. Well, if in he's any a case, Jesuit. in any case, in terms of his um, humility and his kindness, uh, he very much w- reminded me of the of the current uh, Pope, and uh, we were a very a town riven by uh, divisions uh, then that uh, political divisions that were really really nasty. And he was a tonic for the town. But I remember um, uh, Cardinal uh, Bernadine was on a flight with me one day from Washington, and we were in coach. I was sitting right behind him. I didn't know him, but I knew who he was. I thought it was unusual for a cardinal to be sitting in coach. Cardinal Cody, his predecessor, would never have sat in coach. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and uh, there was a businessman who was chatting him up uh, throughout this flight, and he was very patient and talk. And we're getting off the plane, and the businessman's pulling up, on his coat, he had had a few pops. He was trying to get his coat on, and he says, "Hey, Father, I was talking so much, I didn't even ask you. Where is your church?" And the cardinal said, "Well, I kind of move around." <laughs> and I thought that was so disarming, yeah. you know. And yeah. um, he was when he died, it was the whole city felt the loss, the whole community felt the loss because he ministered to everyone. Yeah, and uh, he he had this pastoral role for the entire. Uh, community and and that's what uh, a a a a leader of faith a faith leader uh, can do. Yes, uh, and, and that's what Pope Francis I think is. He's that that pastoral pastoral approach that you're talking about, David. And I got to tell you, the number of folks I talk to in the bar in the vias, the really poor sections of Buenos Aires, where Pope Francis would go on his days off and during official duty, and hang out, who told me that he took public transportation buses there. And if you're the Cardinal of Buenos Aires and the Catholic Church is really aligned with the government, and until a few years ago, you had to be Catholic in order to be elected president of Argentina. It was a constitutional amendment. Okay? So the Catholic Cardinal is a big deal in, in Argentina. All chauffeur driven around, not Pope Francis when he was Cardinal. Bus and uh, train, okay? And uh, our metro system. And that's consistent with him that he would walk through these muddy streets and get his shoes muddy and they you know to a person told me stories like that I had somebody else told me that when he went over um to the last voting for the uh, uh, pope which he got elected pope he had a first class ticket somebody bought it for him and that's a long flight from buenos aires to rome and he went down back of the plane found an old woman put her in his seat and then he sat in coach as a 75, 76-year-old man. So like Bernadine in that great story you just told, I mean, he's in coach, and he is going public transportation. So when he gets in that fiat, when he sees President Obama last year, he's sending a message to us. Yes. When he's inviting homeless people over for his birthday party, he's sending a message. When he's giving his first-class ticket up to a woman, an older lady, so he can sit in coach, flying all the way across the the ocean, He's sending a message, and that's a that's why he's a great teacher. It'll be interesting to see how much he can move the institution of the church. One of the things that struck me was I, um, I got to do some really great things when I was 
working for the president. One of them was uh, to go to the Vatican and meet his predecessor, Pope Benedict. And one of the, what was striking to me walking through the Vatican was uh, how opulent it was. And there was artwork on the walls that were, you know, I was told paintings worth $20 million and so on. And I was thinking to myself, man, you could sell that painting yep. and help an awful lot of people. And I'm sure he must think that too when he walks the walls when he walks the halls of uh, of the Vatican. But these there are traditions and there are customs that are are are, are very embedded. Yeah, it's a two thousand year old institution, and he's running a government as well as being a religious leader, right? Yeah. And I think what you'll see though, when he had this commission set up to study whether women could become deacons, I think that's going to make a difference because I'm I'm hopeful that women will become deacons. And when they start preaching in Catholic churches, when they start performing a lot of the services that priests can do, I think that will change things. But you're right, he's running a pretty conservative 2,000-year-old institution that is worldwide. So from an American lens, we want to put him in the box of progressive or conservative, or does he lean Democrat or Republican, or is he an independent? And he's representing Africa, Central South America, the whole world. Um, but these little seeds that he plants, and the, you know, when he's riding around in a fiat, and when he gets rid of some of the f- fancy stuff that Benedict had around, when he gives away the summer palace that the Pope has in the mountains of Italy and turns it into a museum so everyone can go there, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's changing things. Did it change you? Yeah, I mean, I'm totally confused right now as to uh, you know where I'm going to go. I mean, I enjoy my work at Save the Children. I run the C4, the Save the Children Action Network, and we're involved in political races on early childhood education and saving babies and mothers' lives around the world. So we're in the political arena in that regard. Uh, but he talks about you know listening to poor people and staying engaged with poor people, about not building big non-governmental organizations. Exactly what, you know, I was always you know, trained to, you want to have a bigger budget, you want to have more money, you want to drive efficiencies, you want a five-year plan. And Pope Francis says, stay close to the poor, stay small organization, listen to the poor, and just don't provide services for them. And he says, don't trust the NGOs. Hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, I work for one, right? <laughs> and you know, we talk all the time about amassing political power, and he's saying that the real power comes in solidarity with the poor. And then you look around, like Lech Walesa wasn't in charge of, you know, communist Poland. You look at, uh, you know, Martin Luther King wasn't exactly, you know, U.S. senator. Mm-hmm. Rosa Parks, you know, is not a billionaire. So you look at where power comes from, and he's a challenge. Mm-hmm. He's a great teacher in that regard. And, you know, the sense of humility and the sense of mercy and the outreach he does with Jews and, you know, I asked this rabbi down there, Skorka, who's a good friend of his, who wrote the introduction to his uh, autobiography. Rabbi Skorka, who speaks English, goes, how many cardinals around the world have a Jew write the introduction to his autobiography? None, he says. None. He goes, I'm the only one ever. And my guy's Pope. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, uh, these are real Are outrage. they still friendly? Are they still oh, yeah, close? yeah. They're friendly. They're mm-hmm. definitely friendly. And there's a number of stories in this book I wrote, uh, you know, from Jews and uh, from atheists about their relationship with the Pope because he's reaching out. And, you know, should I be doing that type of work or do I stay engaged in the political arena, try to raise a lot more money and, you know, go that route? But he doesn't really subscribe to these ideologies because they come and they go. What he's talking about is, I think, you know, a, a longer window on how you move people's hearts and get them to change their behavior 
And that's his relationship with God. He is a man of, is he 80 now? He turns uh, 80. I don't know when this is going to be broadcast, but December 17th. And um, uh, obviously he's got a lot of energy, uh, but... Up every morning at 4.30. But the... Mass uh, every day at 7. But the the reality is that uh, he, he will move on here yes. at some point. What happens to the church then? And do you think that all of this change that he's bringing will be um, uh, will will be sustained, or will there be a backlash to uh, the approach that well, he's the only the, the, I'm asking? I guess asking you as a as a guy who comes out of politics and is I'm asking you a political question about how you view the College of Cardinals and the Church as an institution. Um, well, I would guess, you know, given the cardinal, uh, the collection, uh, the College of Cardinals, what I had thought they would have put a, a pastoral guy in there who is this man who's a Jesuit, uh, you know, five years ago, I think I would have gotten pretty good odds on that. So I think the Holy Spirit, God works in mysterious ways, and it's not just a throwaway line. I, I think it, you know, do I think he's appointing guys like uh, Superchair in Chicago who are more pastoral in their approach? Yes. Will he appoint more of them? Yes. Will they choose someone like Francis? Who knows? Do I think he's made changes, both small and symbolic, but also important? Yes. I have a friend who is a Catholic priest who drove around a pretty nice car for a while, and he changed it a couple of years ago. And I said, hey, what happened? And he said, Francis. Um, you know, So you can say, well, one priest downgrading his car doesn't make that much of a difference, but you've got all these little ripples of hope going on out there. The way he treats of Jews, the way he treats prostitutes, the way he treats people on the fringes, which is what the Jesuits always, uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, the guy who started the Jesuits, said, go out to the frontier and work with the poor and the powerless. And this is what he's done when he goes to Lampedusa to interact with the refugees there as his first visit as Pope. Uh, he's sending a message to all of us. So I think he, it's going to be hard to backtrack on that is the short answer. You uh, you started off trying to find out, discover whether he was real. It sounds like you're you're thoroughly convinced. Yeah, I mean, I talked to this rabbi who told me that, you know, he met Bergoglio in the slums of Argentina, and then he saw him multiple times, and one time he was washing people's feet. And I said, oh, you mean on Holy Thursday, you know, the celebration uh, – recreating what Jesus did. And he said, no, no, this was just during the week. He did this all the time. He goes, you know, you're surprised because you don't know him, but those of us that know him here in Buenos Aires, we know who he is. So yeah, I'm convinced that he's the real deal. I think, you know, he, look, he's a sinner just like the rest of us. Um, he's not perfect. He, you know, definitely had problems in the way he managed people in the 70s and into the 80s. There are a lot of people still in pain as a result of his leadership, and I write about it in the book. Um, so he's by no means perfect, um, but he is, you know, reaching out to the margins. He and he's challenging you whether you're a Democrat or an Independent or a Republican, whether you think you're progressive or a conservative Catholic, or whether you're a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist. I think that's why people, you know, respond to him because I get great leadership, whether they're political or religious, ask us to get beyond ourselves. They don't ask us to go out to the store and buy more crap. They ask us to, how are we going to make the world a better place? And they aspire us to, you know, go into our uh, soul and try to make connection with our neighbors, not build walls and isolate us, right? And those are what great leaders do. And I think that's what he's doing. You know, he's saying, whether you're, again, Catholic or a Christian or a Jew or a atheist, 
you know, we're all in this together. And that's why this Rabbi Skorka, when I asked him who uh, Bergoglio, Pope Francis' favorite character was, he didn't even think about it. He said Abraham. He said because Abraham wandered, always trying to develop a relationship with God, but he wandered around trying to learn. And we're all wanderers, right? I mean, the name of the book is Pilgrimage, but we're all pilgrims. Because as you say, we're all going to leave here in a matter of years. So he's a pilgrim. And, you know, he's striving to try to do a better job with other human beings, but also his relationship with God. The book is Pilgrimage, My Search for the Real Pope Francis. And, uh, Mark, your journey is far from done, but you've had so much impact already. And I look forward to see what you do in the future. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for for being here. Thanks, David. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.